When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Doc Vader, the most powerful clinician in the galaxy. You are listening to the Inside the Boards podcast. The force is moderately to severely strong with this one. Vader out. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. We are back for part two of our Reproductive Physiology and Pathology review for the Study Smarter series with Diane Evans from PassingYourOBGYNBoards.com. Let's get right into it, dissecting some open osmosis practice questions. A 50-year-old woman comes to the office because of complaints of hot flashes, mood changes, and a decreased libido. A recent DEXA scan indicates a T-score of 2.7 standard deviations below the mean. Which of the following is associated with the most likely diagnosis in this patient? All right, so these are a little complicated, so I'm going to read them slow. So the first one would be A, decreased estrogen, decreased FSH, decreased LH, and decreased GNRH. B will be decreased estrogen, increased FSH, and increased LH, but decreased GNRH. And C will be decreased estrogen, increased FSH, increased LH, increased GNRH. And actually, I think because these are so complex, we'll just leave those three answer choices. So A, B, or C. And the answer here is going to be C, decreased estrogen, increased FSH and LH, and increased GNRH. So walk us through that endocrinologic milieu you know, I hate these type of questions Me on the too. boards because they're secondary questions, right? So I look at this question, I get all excited, and that's why I read the choices first, okay? Because if I didn't look at them and I'd read this, I'd say, oh, it's menopause. And then I'm looking and going, geez, now I need to know pathophysiology. Exactly. You look at the answer choices first. You have four things that you need to differentiate. You have estrogen, FSH, LH, and GNRH. Well, I remember that FSH is going to be increased in menopause and most likely LH. And that's because what happens is the ovarian follicles start to deplete. You're going to get a decrease in estrogen. So the primary insult is failure of the ovaries to do their job and produce estrogen and produce that negative feedback on the pituitary to say, hey, you don't need that much FSH and LH around, right? 
Right. So this decreased estrogen is going to lead to obviously increased GnRH concentrations. Remember, GnRH is from the hypothalamus. And so what's going to happen if it's it's going to start saying, hey, make more FSH, make more LH, let's try and produce more and stimulate the ovaries. And the side effects that happen based on this, amenorrhea, because you have decreased estrogen, you have increased FSH and LH. And so that's why the answer choice is going to be C or decreased estrogen, increased FSH, increased LH, and increased GnRH. And basically, that's what leads to your symptoms of uh, not only hot flashes, vasomotor symptoms, depression, but you get dry skin either uh, you know on the body or in the vagina. You get vaginal atrophy. You get problems with intercourse. And some say maybe testosterone might be involved and you have a decrease in testosterone. So therefore, decreased sexual desire or decreased libido here. Got it. So, well, let me ask you about this. Um... First off, that STEM says a DEXA scan indicates a T-score 2.7 standard deviations below the mean. What is that telling us? Well, a DEXA scan is basically something that it looks at the hip and looks at the spine. What it does is it compares a healthy 25-year-old, same race, same sex, so a Caucasian 25-year-old, to a 65 or 70-year-old Caucasian female, and it looks at the ratio of what the bone density is. So there's different tiers of bone density to where we get concerned. So it used to be called osteopenia. Now it's low bone mass. So anything that's more than one standard deviation up to minus 2.5 standards deviations is low bone mass or osteopenia. This lady falls beyond that. She falls beyond that minus 2.5. So she has osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is seen in menopause due to the decrease in estrogen, which accelerates bone loss. And that's why it's so important for vitamin D and calcium supplementation to help maintain healthy bones, as well as low impact exercise. One thing you have to remember is there's just certain things in medicine that are rote memorization yeah. and uh, the osteoporosis it, greater than minus 2.5. That's a definition. So whenever you have anything that's a definition question, you need to really make sure that you're going to remember that. And that's where the first aid for the USMLE or the first aid for the COMLEX really comes into to play. And that's one of the things I used in my study tools, along with question banks and audio listening, is, is really getting to know what those important points are. Because medicine is like learning out of a, a fire hydrant, right? right? You have all this information <laughs> thrown at you and you feel like you're swallowing a, a huge amount of information at the same time. Absolutely. All right. Let's do... A 22-year-old woman who comes to the primary care office with a one-week history of foul-smelling vaginal discharge. She reports being sexually active with multiple partners and inconsistent condom use. On pelvic examination, her vaginal mucosa is erythematous and friable, and her cervix shows erythema with pinpoint areas of exudation. A wet mount preparation of the discharge shows numerous multi-flagellated organisms. Which of the following is the next best step in management? A, treat with metronidazole. B, reassurance. C, treat with fluconazole. D, treat with ceftriaxone. Or E, treat with nitrofurantoin. 
So this question, I think, is interesting because it requires you to know something about what disease state you think it is and then what pharmacologically is going to be important for its treatment. Yep. What's the correct answer? So the correct answer is metronidazole because this woman has trichomoniasis. Right. And this is a favorite thing I love to show medical students under the microscope because you have these flagellated organisms and they almost jump off the screen. So they look like little kind of discs with tails and they're running all over the place. And one of my favorite questions is is like, how do you know they're not sperm? That's a good thing too. Uh, Sperm are smaller and they have a longer flagellated tail and they're not going to be associated with this. But I think the most important thing from this stem is really what the description is. And so this is something where there's a buzzword here, right? Yeah. So the cervix shows erythema with pinpoint areas of exudation. If they were nice, right, they would say strawberry cervix, and that's the buzzword for trichomoniasis. And see, that's the problem. The boards have gotten away, both Comlex and USMLA, from using the the buzzwords. So now they right. rely so much more on descriptions, which educationally makes sense. Like, if you hear ground glass appearance to the lungs and think some sort of like fibrotic process or whatever, that's not as helpful as knowing what that actually means. Same with strawberry cervix. But it's it's really the descriptor, a friable cervix with erythematous pinpoint areas of exudate. The other thing that they didn't really give you in this stem itself, they didn't really describe the discharge. They do describe that it's foul smelling. The reason metronidazole is used is that is a treatment for trichomoniasis. It's also a treatment for bacterial vaginosis. One of the things to know, though, is if they describe the discharge as being fishy, then you would think more bacterial vaginosis, and metronidazole still would be the same answer. But what they say, and they give one clue in here, they say she has inconsistent condom use, and she has multiple partners. So you know it has to be some type of sexually transmitted disease. So in my mind of this differential, if this person came into my office with this type of description, I'd be thinking gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomoniasis, bacterial vaginosis. Now, If they described a discharge that was white and clumpy, maybe she's an uncontrolled diabetic, maybe recent penicillin use for an upper respiratory infection or Keflex, then I'd be thinking of treating with fluconazole, and that's mostly yeast. And underneath the microscope, you can see that typical hyphae. And sometimes on the on the boards, they might actually put a picture. And so instead of these answers, they might have like six pictures and say, which one of these would you see under the microscope? And so, um, you know, that's one thing to think about as well. So treating with fluconazole is usually for vaginal candidiasis. Looking at ceftriaxone, you know, one of the things is, and, and this is something that's not in, in this question stem, but gonorrhea now is so resistant that we have to treat not only with ceftriaxone, but it would also be with azithromycin as well. Which used to just be the treatment for chlamydia. They would teach, give one gram of azithromycin for chlamydia, 250 migs of ceftriaxone for gonorrhea. But now right. with gonorrhea, it's, you add the azithromycin as well. So how would the patient, you think, present differently if this question was, if the answer was ceftriaxone? How would you reword the question? Well, number one, I would say that if she just had a cervicitis, 
I would just probably eliminate the descriptor cervix shows erythema with pinpoint areas of exudation and just mention a cervical exudate. And then I would eliminate the wet mount preparation of the discharge showing numerous multiflagellated organisms and or add something that would indicate or point me towards pelvic inflammatory disease like tenderness on pelvic exam in the adnexa or uterus or the classic one would be cervical motion tenderness. Right. And I think that's an important point to mention, mostly for step two, not so much for step one. Yeah. But ceftriaxone would be a treatment for pelvic inflammatory disease or um, gonorrhea with azithromycin. And then the last choice here is treat with nitrofuritonin. And that's usually something that I treat urinary tract infections with. But the interesting thing about nitrofuritonin, and I always like to let my medical students know this, it's a bacteriostatic agent. It's not a bactericidal. Yep. And that that's a good point. All right, let's do one more. A 30-year-old woman comes to the office because she started to notice some bloody discharge from her left breast one week ago. She does not have any discharge from her right breast. She's otherwise in good health, takes no medications, and denies any recent trauma. Physical examination does not show any discrete mass, but some serosanguinous discharge is elicited via expression. There are no changes to the skin. Ultrasound of the breast shows a single nodule within one of the ducts near the nipple. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Acute mastitis. B. Fibroadenoma. C. Inflammatory carcinoma. D. Intraductal papilloma or E, Philodes tumor? The answer here is the classic D, intraductal papilloma. Bloody nipple discharge on the boards at the medical student level, probably step one and step two, intraductal papilloma. So what are these? Unilateral bloody nipple discharge in a perimenopausal woman is usually intraductal papilloma. And it's basically a benign tumor of the ducts within the breast, and it either causes serous or bloody nipple discharge. And either you can have one or multiple nodules that can be noted on physical exam or seen on breast ultrasound. But because this intraductal papilloma can have atypia or can contain ductal carcinoma, it's recommended that you actually do a core needle biopsy, and it's going to be excised for definitive treatment. The main thing that when you look in this question is that you look at, and when I, when I read this question, is the first thing I'm looking at is how old is this patient? Yeah. Right, because if you gave me a seventy-year-old, I'd be thinking breast cancer. Yeah, good point. Right? Yep. But she's thirty, so most young people are going to have benign conditions, and so you know that there's a bloody discharge. Now, one thing they can do, uh, Patrick, that they can change this is they could say it's there's a guaiac positive discharge, and not even give you the word bloody. Ah, so, so just like a microscopic red blood cells. Okay, so don't laugh at me. Okay, promise no one's going to laugh at me. When I took my step one, I didn't know what guaiac was. And I don't there was know like if I did questions. either. <laughs> there was 30 questions on guaiac. And I remember coming out of the boards and go, guys, what's guaiac? And they're like, Diane, you're such an idiot. That means bloody. Yeah. But I wanted to point that out for all our listeners that make sure you know what guaiac means. If I, I wish I could remember all the examples like that that I have. My favorite is about six months into intern year, I remember having this weird epiphany that is just embarrassing now. And that was 
that when I did a cervical exam, I should be measuring from the internal os of the cervix. I was like six months into residency before I was like, oh, wait a minute. Have I been... Mm, yeah, I may have just been reporting the external os because they can be <laughs> kind of a funnel or different, um, right. which... Uh, helped explain, maybe it wasn't six months, but it was definitely like longer than it should have been. Like I should have finished my OBGYN rotation as a medical student with that firmly in place. But we all have our <laughs> deficiencies. I figured it out. Don't feel bad. I mean, last week I went to go check a, a lady who was preterm labor. And when I first checked her, I thought she was six centimeters. And I'm like, oh my uh -oh. gosh, <laughs> she's, she's six. And I said, well, hang on a second. That's the external laws. Yeah. And you have to go a little bit further back. And she was only two centimeters on the internal laws. But I made sure the nurse know that. I said, when you go in and you check her, it's you're going to think she's six <laughs> centimeters. And she's really not. But you've gotten those calls, I'm sure, like I have. Oh, yes. this person's <laughs> completely dilated. And the cervix is very effaced, meaning there's no cervix left. But she's not completely dilated. The cervix is way posterior. And she's actually one centimeter. You guys don't have to worry about that, though. Not, no. not for a little bit. <laughs> so one of the things I like about this question here is the answer choices. And let's go over those for a little bit. Acute mastitis. Yeah. So acute mastitis, I think the answer would be acute mastitis if I gave a vignette of a breastfeeding female associated with erythema over the breast in a hard fluctuant area. I'd be thinking of a breast abscess. And then that's usually treated with dicloxacillin or Bactrim. A fibroadenoma, I would say that this is a person that has pain, breast pain or myalgias, and you notice uh, a multiple discrete lumpiness to the breast bilaterally. Fibroadenomas are the most common pathology on biopsy of a young woman, and they're benign. Inflammatory carcinoma, I think I mentioned this in the beginning, that would be choice C, but that would be the 70-year-old. So if I think that this person was 70-year-old and she had a bloody nipple discharge, I would also change it to there's a gross cellulitis over the breast and maybe a pud to orange change. And that's another buzzword where you have like puckering of the breast tissue. Yeah, like and dimpling so actually, like an orange skin, peau d'orange. It looks exactly like an orange. So. Have you ever seen that? Because that's, I know, one of our feared kind of things is to see somebody with an inflammatory breast car carcinoma because they're rapidly progressive, right? Right. I had the honor of being a public health service scholar, and so they paid for medical school. And one of the best things I ever did with my career, because I went out and I serviced the Indian Health Services in uh, Tuba City as well as in uh, Browning, Montana. And unfortunately, in these areas, you see a lot of pathology. So I actually got pretty good at, at um, doing breast exams and seeing breast cancer, which is uh, seems to be a little bit more prevalent in this population. But definitely looking at the skin and noticing a dimpling or a retraction, and you're looking for a nodule that's going to be in the upper outer quadrant. And I also do my clavicular and my axillary node palpation when I'm doing those. But you will notice an inverted nipple. You can notice some bloody nipple discharge and some erythema. It's a very classic appearance. And then phylloides tumor. I, I get this um, sometimes where you have someone come in, usually they're a young female, yeah. and they have one breast that's bigger than the other. And so um, a phylloides tumor, it's a rare benign breast le uh, lesion. They do excise them because it is associated with some malignant potential, but they're large multinodular tumors and the skin is actually really stressed. So you might have an A cup on one side and a D cup on the other. So it's very exaggerated. Oh. I, you know, I've never seen that, but everyone always thinks come to the OBGYN for breast stuff, right? But I don't, 
I don't know. I, I don't like breast disease. I... Well, it's, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I have a lot of people I can refer to. Uh, our general surgeons um, do that. And I actually yeah. have one of, one of my residents uh, that I, um, one of my junior residents actually that I trained with did a breast fellowship. And, and so she's an OBGYN, but she subspecializes in breasts. Such, I specialize like you do in general OBGYN, but she loves breast. For me, I'll diagnose it and then I have to send it on. <laughs> Oh, is that just like a non-accredited fellowship in in breast disease? Right. They do like core needle biopsies and FNAs right. and stuff? Interesting. But one thing, too, that I can um, also mention is um, in terms of breast disease is also talking a little bit about, you know, nipple discharge. So a bloody nipple discharge, right, would be an interductal papilloma or carcinoma based on age. What about a green nipple discharge? Say this vignette said that there was a green nipple discharge. What would the answer choice be then? Um, I would think... Uh, like a ductal lactasia or something, right? So... Yeah, so that's. Told you that's, I hated breasts. <laughs> I know, I know. So anyway, a ductal ectasia is like a green, sticky discharge, and everyone gets all concerned about that. But um, that's actually a benign finding as well, and you can actually have that more in the menopausal female. The other thing that you can have too is you can have galactorrhea from the breast, right? That's a good point. Yep. Galactorrhea. I don't know if that's more like a step two, but then you're thinking mostly. No, you know, I think they would. Um, a pituitary adenoma is definitely. A fair game for step one, but mostly probably in relation to either hypothyroidism producing excess TRH, which uh, stimulates the production of prolactin and or autonomous production of prolactin by an adenoma. Yeah, I think that's fair game, though. Yeah. So, and then one thing with with that, if you have someone who has, you know, bilateral nipple discharge and it's milky, remember the first thing to do is to rule out pregnancy, right? Because when you're pregnant, you can have galactorrhea. The next thing is, is are they on any psychotropic medications? So sometimes antipsychotics will produce that. Also excessive nipple stimulation or sometimes even something like a chest wall disease like herpes zoster can cause galactorrhea. And then the big thing is, is to look at the prolactin level and based on that determines if you have that and visual symptoms, if you're going to do an MRI. And then once you get the MRI, it's really how big that micro or macro adenoma is. Macro adenoma will go through surgery where micro adenoma, then you're talking about medical treatment with something like bromocryptine. Yeah, I guess that's important because at least medication side effect wise, if you have a dopamine antagonist, as in the antipsychotics, that will reduce the amount of prolactin-inhibiting hormone, which is also named for dopamine. And therefore, treating microadenomas is via a dopamine D2 agonist, cabergoline or Bromocryptine. Bromocryptine, yes. yeah. Yeah. I saw you closing your eyes there. It's it's nice because I can see you on video. So I'm like, wow, he remembers all this stuff. I'm so proud of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I vaguely I I've <laughs> somewhat. I sometimes have to reach pretty deep into the recesses of my mind. Well, thank you for your time. I don't want to take any more of it. This has been great. It's nice to be able to have a conversation with somebody from the same specialty. I'm sure we could probably go on a lot. A lot right. longer, but we'll have to have you back on in the summer when we can discuss more shelf exam or step two level content, because that that's a little more, I think, exciting for us than uh, going back to step one. 
Not not that I don't love it, but it's just uh it's it's too post traumatic to do for a long period of time. <laughs> well, I appreciate you having me on there today and helping others to learn a little bit more about this difficult topic. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Don't forget to share the Study Smarter series on social media. Just share an episode, tag at Boards Insider on Twitter or Inside the Boards on Facebook or Instagram, and you'll be entered to win the Study Smarter contest, which is going to be a $50 Amazon gift card at the end of the series. And thanks to James from Two O'Clock Courage for letting us use the opening track, which is The Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missalette. You can check Two O'Clock Courage, the best band you've never heard of, at Two O'Clock Courage.com or on iTunes or Spotify. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.